0: The youngest picture I could see of you was uh, on your social media. I think you were probably around four or five, and your dad had a pair of headphones on you. Yeah. Um, so can the- can I assume that you grew up in a, a pretty musical family then?
1: Yeah, I didn't actually. Um, oh really? So I know that photo. That was actually at my uh, at my grandparents' house. My uncle, my so my dad's oldest brother, my uncle Chuck, had Down syndrome and loved music. Oh, okay. He had a big old pair of studio headphones like these that he listened to his Elvis records on. So I was actually sitting on his bed, yeah, playing uh, playing records. And I called, you know, according to my parents, I called it my my music hat, <laughs> the music hat. So now here I am, you know, third. Well, more than that. If I was two, let's see, we're uh, you know thirty nine years later.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. We're
1: the same hat. You know what I mean. So there you go.
0: And so at the age of six, you started taking music lessons um, at the Ontario Conservatory of Music. Yeah. So was that your parents just wanting to get you into some form of activity if they weren't really into music?
1: Yeah. Well, they were, I wouldn't say that they weren't into music. So this is, so my dad played a bit of guitar and he played like, you know, he played guitar and sang at church kind of thing. Ah. Um, and my, but what was really the musicality in my family, I believe comes from my great grandmother. So my mother's grandmother, she had an organ in her house. She had a big old house. It's still there in Niagara Falls on Stanford Green Drive. And um, uh, so old the house is, it had a parlor. And in the parlor was this organ and i would noodle on it for hours and i have uh vague memories of sitting on her knee at like three four years old and like and singing uh church hymns she, oh, okay. she, so she was actually she played fiddle and she played organ but in those days it was unladylike for a woman to play fiddle Oh really? So, so she was kind of uh, shunned from that, and then into kind of you know, I mean, she was a homemaker and a farmer and and, uh, and and that kind of thing. But that's where my love of music comes from. And I was I came out musical, so they and they didn't really know where I came from, but I had this ability to be able to sit at an instrument and figure out songs. You know, which they thought was pretty interesting for, you know, for a three, four or five year old kid. So they they asked me. I I remember when they sat me down, they said, would you like to take lessons? And I got to pick whether I took piano lessons or organ lessons. And I picked
0: organ. I don't know why. Oh, really? (laughs) I thought you were going to say piano. I thought for sure.
1: No, because my my great grandmother had an organ, so I didn't really understand the difference. And I just said organ because it was what I knew, you know, and uh, so we got one in the house. And the the beautiful thing about the Ontario Conservatory music at that time, and I think it's similar today, is that they put together little bands Mm -hmm. based on the age of the kids and skill level. And so right from the time... Like I think I took maybe less than a year of lessons until they said, "Would you like to be in a band?" And I just thought that was the coolest thing ever. Yes, I want to be in a band. That's like the Beatles. That sounds great <laughs> to me, you know. And and I um, so I I you know it was great. We had, I'd have my piano like my my personal lesson. I took piano later on uh, at the same place but uh, so on Saturday mornings for half an hour I had my lesson and then on Wednesday nights at 7 o'clock we'd have an hour long band practice and that was so exciting for me because all of a sudden music was a team sport and I talk about this all the time it's like you know it's the same thing as, as you know you can drag your hockey net into your driveway and play by yourself after school and practice your wrist shot and pretend and, you know, do all the basics and it's fine. But when you get two or three friends together, all of a sudden you got a little game on your hands and isn't that way more fun than playing (laughs) by yourself. And it was very much like that for me and, and with music, you know, once I figured out that you could play together and the power that comes with, you know, five guys or five girls or whoever's in your band, you know, playing the same chord at the same time, you know. That was really exciting for me.
0: And were you singing back then as well?
1: So I didn't sing my very first band. I didn't sing, uh, but I, they quickly realized that I could sing. And from what I gather, it was an unusual skill to be able to sing and play at the same time. And I always did that. It was just something that came naturally to me. So, uh, I got moved from the keyboard player to being the keyboard player slash lead singer pretty fast
0: as long as you can remember, have you always seen it as something you wanted to do as a career? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that was clear to me, you know, and I've told this story a number of times too. It's like grade two, Mrs. Morgan's class, Greendale public school in Niagara Falls. She went around and asked everyone what they wanted to be when they grow up, when they grew up. And when it got to me, I said, professional musician. And all the kids laughed and she said, Oh, Timmy, you can't be a professional musician. They don't make any money. And I thought, screw you, lady. I don't, need, I don't even. I don't need money. I just want to play. You know what exactly, I mean?
0: Exactly. Like, right. I,
1: and that was the beginnings of this fire that got lit under me because I I faced a lot of op- opposition. You know, from from. Uh, family and from people that were close to me, uh, you know, when it, when it came time to, that I, I I had decided I really want to do this as a living, they were like, you're crazy. You can't do it. It's so hard. Please don't. <laughs> you no. Know, uh, you know, people would say things like, do you, you, you want to live out of a suitcase for the rest of your life? And I'm like, yeah, not <laughs> why not? <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? And, but, and, and that, that, but that um, that opposition or that little bit of challenge really kind of, like I said, like sort of lit a fire in me to, to, to kind of prove everyone that I could, I could, <laughs> you know, and like from guidance counselors to my grandparents, you know, and, and let, and let me preface this by saying, you know, when, when you're a teenager and, and you're, you're full of piss and vinegar, you, you don't, you know, I, I thought these people were crazy, but as a parent now fully get where you're coming from fully get it. And it, you know, when people ask me, like, do you hope your kids are musical? Yes. Yes, I'm glad that they are musical. Do I want them to follow it into a career? Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. It's just so it's so it's more heartbreaking than it is uh, fulfilling. And on any given day, you know what I mean. And right, I yep. you don't want that for your children. You don't want your children to have to to uh, suffer and to feel that anguish. And you know the entertainment business is such a bizarre business in that it doesn't matter how talented you are or how good you are it, there are so many other factors at play there in, in terms in you know to that that uh that creates success you know right. so that's that was the that's a, so what i'm trying to say is now in retrospect i fully understand where all those people were coming from but i'm glad right. that i didn't listen you know
0: and then when you went to the university of waterloo was that sort of to appease everybody yes and just yeah. kind of get everyone off your back
1: absolutely so i i went to waterloo to chase a girl and uh, that didn't work out by the way Uh, (laughs) but uh i also knew that waterloo was a great school and that you know i my 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 parents especially my mother not so much my dad but my mom was really like you need you need to do something other than music and they you know i sort of i went i told them i wanted to do a degree in psychology because i wanted to use that as a springboard to do music therapy Oh, okay. Those were all
0: lies.
1: (laughs) Those were all lies. I knew that I wanted to do music full time and I didn't know how or how to make that happen. But there was something in me that was just saying, you just got to stick with it, stick with it and and you'll get your shot, you know. And uh, so many times almost packed it in. And uh, uh, like, again, you know, so it's just bizarre how things work out, but I'm glad that I didn't at the end of the day.
0: And when did the Neil Diamond cover band come oh my in? God.
1: Yeah, that was that was the lowest point of my career. So <laughs> okay, so what happened was this. One day I woke up and I had gigs on the books six months out, six days a week. So I decided I guess this is I'm do I'm doing it. Right. And I got offered this gig. I had done a stint. With a, on a cruise ship, like playing in the band in the in a lounge band, and uh, toured all over, got got to see the world, you know. But when you do a gig on a cruise ship, you you play everything from the girl from Ipanema to Achey Breaky Heart and anything in between, and we did. And i loved it because i had to learn you know you played five hours a night so your chops get really good really sharp really fast right and you had to learn i think i had to learn between three and four hundred songs to do that gig and that was so valuable as a songwriter to learn and pick apart and deconstruct all of those songs you know from summer wind you know, Frank Sinatra to the Beatles, you know, and, and this band, so I did one contract with them and I came back, um, and finished my degree. I wasn't going to do it, but my mom cried.
0: Oh, that'll uh, get you.
1: I couldn't make my mother cry. So I said, okay, guys, I gotta go. I gotta go finish my degree. And, um, and so later on, I, I reconnected with that band they had done. They were doing uh, a Beatles tribute band full-time and they needed a guy and my band had just broken up and I needed work. So, um, I took the gig and in doing so I had to sub out all of my house gigs. So for instance, I was playing like every Tuesday in Brantford every Wednesday in Waterloo, Thursdays in Guelph and then Friday Saturday was always changing. I was with the band and uh, but I got you know this Beatles gig offer and we dressed up and we wore the suits and the wigs and the whole nine and we were gonna get to play in like you know 28 countries singing Beatles songs and I thought that was really interesting and I needed the work so I took it. When I got back from that gig, all the gigs that I had been promised, don't worry, you'll always have a job here. They were all gone. Every <sighs> single one of them. I had no work. And that was unusual for me. Like I, I was pretty consistent in terms of all always being able to like pay my bills. And, and, you know, I never made a great living. I wasn't, I was barely living above the poverty line, <laughs> but <laughs> but I was doing what I love to do. And that was okay. And, yeah. uh, and and it was in that low moment that uh, I got hired by this casino band. And they were, they, they, it was the kind of thing where like the keyboard player was the personal assistant to the agent that booked all the casinos. It was kind of sh- a little bit shady right and they needed a guy and they would do like for instance a guy uh you know this neil diamond guy he would come up from pennsylvania and do you know four or five casinos in, in ontario and he needed a band because you couldn't bring an american band it, w- it was too expensive with visas and blah 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 so we would we would be the band and you know the thing about that gig was i spent weeks weeks in my basement, learning all those parts. I learned all those parts, guitar parts up the wazoo because Neil Diamond, he's a fantastic songwriter and great production. And I learned all the background parts, never having met this man that I was working for on this tour. And uh, I was, first night was a Thursday night and we were at the Fort Erie Casino. And nice to meet you. You know, like, you know, here we are at the gig, ready to play. Hi, nice to meet you, blah, 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 blah. And I said, by the way, I'm dying to know. So in such and such a song, do you want me to grab the part up here? Or should I go down here? Or like, there, cause there's three parts happening. Like, what do you, which one do you, do you want me to cover? And he's like, what? Oh no, no, no. It's all on a track. Just turn your volume
0: oh, on. Oh no.
1: I said, are you kidding me? I spent weeks, weeks learning these guitar parts. And to be told, now it's all on a backing track, dude. Just turn your volume down and dance. And I was so <laughs> offended, so offended. And that, like, that was like, you could see how, like, at that point, I was like, I need a job. Like, this is not. I can't. I I couldn't look people in the eye from the stage, like, knowing that it wasn't us playing. Like, right? Yeah. The drums were on the track. Like, I thought it was suspect, suspect, because the 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 guy was very insistent that the drummer had to play an electronic drum set. Which for any kind of band is like, what's what? Who wants an electric kit? Yeah, I I was wondering
0: how he was going to play to a track.
1: Right. So I was like, well, maybe it's like volume sensitive rooms, which they were. So that's one way you control volume is just turn down the the drums, literally, rather. Right. So I was like, and it wasn't my band. I wasn't the band leader. So I was just there to get a check. And, uh, you know, it was just, it was so unbelievably horrible that. I, it was it was almost a breaking point for me. And I, I didn't stay. I did one tour with them and it was literally over the course of like not even a week. And I said, I can't I can't do, do this. Like I I need to feel good about, you know, the, the product that I'm that I'm uh, selling, you know, from the stage, like and looking people in the eye. Like, it just was it was a tough one. It was a, it was a tough one for me.
0: Wow. And as much as we could probably sit here for a full week and talk about all the crazy stories, I do want to get into the successes that you have had. (laughs) And so let's jump through all of that craziness and get to 2011 when you sign with Open Road. Yeah, Um, What was that like? Was it sort of a process in signing with them? Or was there one moment you can remember of that it hitting you like oh my gosh I'm signing a record deal
1: yeah no they didn't actually I didn't physically sign anything until much later it was all oh, okay. very um like I saw so I met the RGK open road people through a couple of songwriters that had seen me play at my gig in downtown Toronto I, was, I used to play every Wednesday uh at a place called Grace O'Malley's and just by myself and I did everything because in those days again like you could I just wanted to I had to take every gig I right. needed it. And so we could do it all. We could do a, a night of rock covers. We could do a night of country. We could do a night of Irish music. Um, and at my acoustic gigs, I would just do a mishmash of everything because people would ask for requests. Hey, play Keith Urban. Here you go. Hey, play Journey. Here you go. Um, you know, Play Neil Diamond. Here you go. You know what I mean? Like So um, I, I would do all those things. And I met these songwriters at the gig, and they said, "You know, do, do you write? And I said yes, although I hadn't written anything in a long, long time. Oh, okay. And uh, and they said, well, let's, you know, we got the one fella said, I got a deal over at EMI Publishing and I've got some studio time. Why don't we write some songs and we'll see what happens? So we wrote some songs and they took those songs to Nashville and they played them for Ron Kitchener, who's my manager now. Um, and Ron, you know, said these songs are awful, but there's something with, these guys, with this guy's voice. Uh, maybe <laughs> we'll come and see him sing. And that was it. That was it. That was sort of in June... And the CCMA's that year, where it was in Hamilton, and uh, which is close to where I live, and they they we had sort of kept in touch. And they said, "Listen, uh, if he sets up a showcase in and around the CCMA, maybe we'll come." Oh,
0: and okay, so by okay. that
1: by that time, my wife was super pregnant with our, our uh, first child, and I I begged this bar at Fennell and Wentworth in Hamilton called Squires. I used to play there once a month, and I said, "Could I come?" on a Sunday afternoon, set up my gear for free, just play because this this talent scout from Nashville is, is going to come and see me play. And they were like, I guess, okay, <laughs> sure. Uh, and uh, and we, it was like out of a movie, man. I you know, packed pack the room full of friends and family. In walks this guy with a dirty baseball cap. And he says, uh, can you tell me uh, where to find Tim Hicks? I said, that's me. And he goes, okay, Denny Carr, uh, nice to meet you. You're on. And that was it. I jumped up there and played. And what i thought was interesting was he stayed for the whole performance typically you know i had heard they'd stay for one or two songs and then leave but he stayed for the whole set and i sat down with him and he said you know you kind of got your hands full you know when's the baby due and i said he's due in november he said okay well come have the baby in november and come to nashville early in the new year and we'll see what happens and and that's what we did on on january 5th we wrapped him up in a blanket and drove my minivan to nashville and spent a week and then I just kept going back. They kept saying, you know, could you, when can you come back? So I would just, I'd go back for another week. When can you come back? I'd go back for another week. And eventually they said, okay, we're gonna put something out and we'll see how it goes. And no guarantees, but maybe you never know. So they put out get by and it went gangbusters. And yeah. uh, and then it was on. And it wasn't until after the su- success of Get By that I actually physically signed. But at that point, it was like, it was game on. And I remember, you know, the hardest part about that was making the transition from being a working musician to being an artist. And so they were begging me, like, cancel your gigs. And I was like, listen, are you going to pay for my groceries? And they said, no. And I <laughs> said, well, then I'm not canceling my gigs. Like, that's just it. So I had to strike a deal with them. You know, they said, okay, at, on June 1st, You're not going to do any more cover gigs. I said, okay, I can handle that. And on May 31st, I played my last cover gig um, in a little tiny town called Acton, Ontario, at Tanner's Garage. And that was it. And, uh, you know, never
0: looked back. Wow. And you talk about the writing and the fact that you had written in the past, but not recently. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you're going down to Nashville to write. Oh, what yeah. was your feeling at that point? Was it a, uh, a scary thing?
1: Oh yeah. I felt like a, I cause you know, in Southern Ontario, although, cause even though that it's big, I still kind of felt like, like I had proven myself around here. Like, I, you know, I knew a lot of people in the bar industry and in the club industry and I played, I had a reputation and, You know, I felt like, you know, not I wouldn't say I felt like a big fish in a small pond, but I did feel like I was a player in that game. And when I got to Nashville, I felt this big because, you know, as I remember putting it to someone then, like everybody there sings and plays, much like everyone you meet in Los Angeles is an actor. Right. In Nashville, everybody plays guitar, sings and your cab driver and the guy that brought you your hamburger at lunch sings and plays better than you. And that's just how it is there. Like, is it just full of talent? And but I had a bizarre uh, conversation with a with a taxi driver on the way to the airport. I had been down there for a week, and he picked me up for my early flight home. And he said, uh, "You know, what are you doing in town?" He saw my guitar. I said, "Ah, I'm writing songs." He goes, "Yeah, you and everybody." I said, "Yeah, me and everybody." He said, "Did you meet anybody?" I said, "Well, what do you mean? Like, I thought he meant like famous people or something." Right. I said, well, you know, I said, well, what do you mean? Famous people? He said, no, like anybody in the business. And I said, well, yeah, I mean, I was invited here. And he said, oh, well, you've already made it. He said, I I pick up 70 people a week at the airport that just show up to Nashville trying to make it. And he said, if you got an invitation to be down here, you're way ahead. And that kind of put it in perspective, like, oh, okay. I understand. Um, but I also felt like I had to learn really fast how to be a good songwriter because you know like I said they they're just they're, the Nashville is full of world-class talent and yeah. uh, but you know I also felt like I wasn't competing with them either you know what I mean I had right. my own thing going on and you know it was never my dream to live in Nashville and to 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 take on America um, I only ever wanted to be like blue rodeo you know like I only ever wanted to be like a Canadian act you know that tour and put out records and 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 make a modest living doing what i love to do and that that was always what was good enough for me
0: get by is released it Hmm. hits really well Hmm. in 2014 you get the ccma rising star award so within those three years from 2011 to 2014 all of a sudden you've hit and now what were those three years like because for me I sort of look at it two ways. You could either think, look at me, I'm a country star all of a sudden, or I've worked my butt off for 17, 20 years, whatever it was, grinding. And now all of a sudden you want to look at me and all of a sudden you want to say I'm this great and I'm this good. So how how was that transition mentally for you?
1: It was tough. Like it, it was, it was really hard because we were having a family at the exact same time. And so to have two young kids at home and a wife on mat leave and to have to be away now all of all, all the time was incredibly difficult. At the same time, my childhood dream of becoming a, a, a professional musician had come true. So there was like, on one hand, the pain of having to be away from my newborn son and my daughter um, and my wife, and then on the other hand, you know, all of a sudden I'm I'm riding tour buses and playing arenas. And it would, if I'm honest, every now and again, it would get under my skin. Like somebody would tweet at me like Tim Hicks, when are you going to play a show close to home? And I was thinking like, well, I played close to home for 18 friggin' years and nobody cared. Nobody (laughs) cared. You didn't come then I played at the pepper. You could have seen me for free downtown. You know what I mean? But you can't, it's, in in those as fast as it comes out it goes like you can't you know people are weren't aware of you then and it wasn't like there was no social media there was no real way of getting the word out that you were playing other than like you'd have a website or like maybe myspace or something like that so i don't fault people for that you you know it wasn't like my career now i feel is like very streamlined you know i do a a, a certain kind of music and I'm not everyone's cup of tea, but I'm some people's cup of tea and that's okay. You know? And, but then it was like, I was doing anything to, to pay the bills. So, you know, I almost, I'm glad that people didn't have to see me in that re- regard. You know what I mean? But I'll tell you, there was, there's one venue in particular that I, that I got fired from. Oh really? Um And fired, not even like, not even a phone call to say, Hey, we're, you know, those dates that we booked were just, we're not gonna do them anymore they just posted a thing on their social media like hey to all performers that were booked on Sunday nights uh your services are no longer required really and I was very offended by that because of course I needed every dollar and yeah. uh, by that point I was I was you know, I was pretty, pretty much booked all the time. So I could have replaced those dates if I had had notice, but this is all to say that the the one venue that fired me, you know, not in a, in a heated thing or anything, you know, canceled all my dates is one of the venues that goes to town to tell everyone, oh, Tim Hicks played here when he was coming up and it's like, you guys fired me. You didn't even call me to tell me that I was, you know, that, that the dates weren't happening. So it's kind of bizarre, you know, the, the range of reactions, uh, that, that that we got you know out, especially out of the gate like you know everyone being impressed to people being skeptical to you know cuz people would see me in different regards like they saw me play in a rock band one time so they're like well how can he oh he's country now it's like well you know we are always kind of doing that that kind of music, but maybe not necessarily at the venue that you saw us at, you know, because we right. we at that venue they asked us to play it to do a certain thing, you know what I mean? Because it was it was just a different game, and I still find it difficult to balance um being an artist versus being a working musician, and I still identify probably to my detriment as a working musician versus <laughs> be, as an artist, you know what I mean? Because I still right. live for the gig, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah, and that your band. Mm -hmm. you've had the same band pretty much all the way through. Were you playing with them before signing with open road, like back in your bar gigs
1: for years, for years, it was me, Doug, Rob, and Andrew were the core of the band. Uh, And Rob has been playing on my records since the year 2000. So him and I have been playing together for 21 years and I've known him for 22 probably. And Doug for God, it's gotta be 12 years now, a dozen years or so, maybe 10 for now it's got to be 12 or 15 years so it's like these were the guys that you know that were playing with me in the trenches you know and and all these bar gigs and i remember there was a moment shortly thereafter when get by had had done its thing and everyone was sort of we were gearing up for the next phase and they said oh and we're gonna find you a much younger much more attractive band
0: that's what i was wondering if you ever had pressure to yeah Yeah. get that you youthful country band
1: yes yes and i said whoa whoa, whoa 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 whoa, whoa, i said okay listen for one thing i didn't come all this way to throw a monkey wrench in the plans and i'll do whatever it is i have to do in order to continue this ride because i have a family now and i got to keep going but let's put this in perspective i said my band they're all great players okay they email back they show up on time no one has a drug or alcohol problem um, they uh, are happy to do whatever it is that we ask them to do, and there's chemistry there. So it's like that stuff you can't buy. Like you can't, yes, you can go your to your Rolodex and find yourself a young, attractive guitar player and a and a uh, bass player that looks the part and a really exciting drummer over here and blah blah blah. But you put them all in the in the room and you're not necessarily going to have the same chemistry as you have from the guys that have been playing together for for 10 years. And and I say to people all the time, it's like it's like a hockey team you know if you play on the same line and i don't i don't know this firsthand because i'm not a hockey player but i i've heard from hockey players i hang with enough of them to know that if you play on the same line with the same guys for long enough you don't have to look to pass the puck you just know they're going to be there and my band is very much like that musically speaking i don't have to look to pass the puck i just have to shake my butt a certain way and they know what's coming or i just have to say a certain thing or or look back from the microphone in in a in give them a look, and they know he's not going to sing the third verse. Take another solo, you know. And those things are so valuable. Not not to mention the fact that these are my buddies, you know. And mm-hmm. I want to share the success of of the work of it that we've put in all those years with them, you know. And and that's why it's important for me and, and you know to include them in things like uh, video shoots and and um, uh you know, like not, not ditching them uh, for, for a younger, more attractive band early on. And, you know, we did do some videos where we hired actors because there was no money in the budget to send all of us to Los Angeles. And I did it. And at the end of it, I was like, I felt like I needed a shower or something like it smelled <laughs> dirty. And they don't care. Like they don't, they're they like, listen, dude, whatever whatever you do, because they don't play on my records. You know, I, I, I cut records with a producer and him and I do all the heavy lifting there. And my band's fine with that. You know, they're they're like, do your thing and then and we'll learn your songs and let's go out on the road and have a great time, drink some beers and 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 play some arenas, you know.
0: Right. And another person within your career that has uh, really been a a steady part of it is Jeff Copeland on the writing side. Yeah. Um, How important has that relationship been, especially when you're going into that world of Nashville and having him there as a steady presence?
1: yeah well he they paired us up together. we had we had eyed another producer early on and uh, it just didn't work out um just timing wise and scheduling and so I was pretty bummed about it and and um, my uh, day-to-day manager at the time he said, don't worry, there's others and he paired us together me and Jeff. and the first song we wrote together was Hell Raisin' good Time and and what was interesting about that was, you know never having met each other before, I'll never like when he answered the door, he had that he was playing that riff on the guitar, and I was like, Oh, oh nice really? Thing. What is that? He's like, I don't know, I was just fiddling around, and that's kind of how the relationship started. And he's become like, We're such close friends now, you know, almost like an older brother to me, and uh, you need that in a producer, I, I think. Like. I need to be able to have a full on red faced argument about the song with someone and then go get beer after, you know what <laughs> I mean? Like I need to have that. And and Jeff, Jeff is that for me. And, you know, there was a time where, um, you know, like I did shake these walls with Corey Crowder and that, that was, you know, there's a few things going on. Jeff and I were, we were a little bit moody with each other back then, but, uh, for a number of reasons, but, but that being said, like I wanted, that was more about how the record was made, because I wanted to make a a Nashville-style record where we'd go in the studio with a band and cut it live off the floor. I really wanted oh, okay. to cut it. Of course, you know, Shake These Walls had Stomping Ground on it and Slow Burn and Slide Over, all these hit songs. And so to this day, he's still... You know, he says, you're the only artist that ever strayed from me and had success. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, okay, all right, Jeff, I get it. But, uh, you know, we talk on the phone all the time, and and uh, we're in the throes right now of, of writing the next thing, whatever that's going to be. So he, he's he been, it's been so important. And, I mean, I've written some of my most important songs with him, um, you know, Hell Raisin and uh, Stronger Beer, of course, which mm-hmm. has become, uh, has permeated pop culture, <laughs> <as they'll say. laughs> And that song was purely a joke, you know, and it was never meant to be anything other than to give my managers a laugh and, and move on, and of course, and now it's gone platinum. So,
0: And um, then I heard him talking about No Truck Song as well, and the fact that you guys sit around a room, you've sat around so much trying to write that number one song, yeah. and No Truck Song was just sort of a fun song that you guys wrote. And yeah. then that's the one that goes number one.
1: Yeah, yeah, we were banging our heads on the table. Yes, yeah, so, so we do this thing called Wildcard Night whenever I'm in Nashville, and we do we've done it now virtually. But um, so when you go to Nashville to write songs, typically it happens during business hours, so you might write between the hours of like 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. Right, which is great. Uh, but sometimes, you know, when when they say on Tuesday at 10 a.m., you will meet John and jared and you will write a ballad it's like well, <laughs> how do i know what song i want to write on tuesday at 10 a.m you know like I don't. right yeah uh but that's very much how business is done down there and it's it's actually it's positive because it forces you to be creative um which is great but you know musicians work at night you know we're night right, out so yeah. we, we decided you know because i started staying at jeff's place um, when, when I would go down there and it would just turn into a write fest, like 24 hours a day, like, you know, we're staying up all night and writing. So we decided we would do wildcard night. And the name of the game with wildcard night is we get some pizzas, we get some beers, all the rules go out the window. No one's allowed to say no, and you can write anything. And so, you know, I had this idea. It, it was actually going to be like a love song. Like, you know, this, this is, this ain't a love song. Like, I, I, like, you know, I kind of lining it up. Like, I miss you. I love you uh you know we can't be together uh and i would say all those things but this ain't this ain't a love song right? oh okay so I, I was working this out in my brain and i jeff knew about this idea and but on wild card night i didn't want to write a love song i wanted to write something fun so i said bruce wallace was with us that night we've written many songs with bruce and uh bruce says what do you you know what do you want to write i said i want to write something really country um and jeff pipes up from the kitchen he's like as long as it's not about trucks because we'll never get it cut because someone told us like don't write about trucks anymore it's not cool (laughs) okay and i was like ah challenge accepted this ain't no truck song like and we laughed and it was just like stupid silliness like and we wrote it in about an hour and a half and then like went to the bar after right and we're like well that'll never be anything uh (laughs) but it sure was fun to write you know and uh next thing you know they're like you know my team loved it and we're cutting it. And then when they, the, when they said, Oh, we're going to put it out as a single. I was like, you guys are crazy. You guys are crazy. That, that piece of garbage. Really? And this ain't no truck song. They're like, no, trust it. It's got a vibe. Like it's really good. And you know, not that I, I was second guessing my ability to write a song. I just thought it was too silly for people, you know, right. but if anyone was going to do it, it was the stronger beer guy. So here we are, you know, doing that thing. And, uh, it just turned out that the timing was perfect. It was, you know, COVID and people were bummed and it was dark. And, you know, here we come with this silly song. That's like, you know, with the ridiculous video of line dancing, you know, people out in the desert. And, uh, it was just a whole lot of fun. And, and, uh, and he went, became my second number 1 and went gold all in the same week I think it was like just bizarre how these and it just it went to sh- on to sh- to show us like you never know what's going to resonate with people mm-hmm. and, and and how timing is such a factor in all those things like you know, and so you have no truck song. And then we went and released Wreck This Town, you know, kind of anticipating that the world would open up a little bit. And that because, you know, things were looking pretty good here in Canada at the end of the summer. And it's like, nope, second wave hit. Everyone stays <laughs> home. No one's going out anywhere. Wreck This Town tanks. Right. So it's right. like, yeah, you, don't, you just don't know what, what's going <laughs> to resonate, what isn't.
0: And now you have the new song, The Good, the Bad and the Pretty. Yeah. Um, it's a song about basically bar life, right? Yeah. And I've talked to other musicians who speak about when they're writing and drawing on past experiences, and that's how they write and that's how they put get emotion into the song. So when you were writing this song, did that happen for you? Did you go back to those 17 years of going around the bars and sort of reminisce on that?
1: Yes, that's exactly what it was about. So so with that one, I had the title. And we wrote it at the CCMA SoCan Songwriting Camp. So it was right. like a group of producers, group of songwriters, group of artists, all together. And we worked with each other. Everyone got to work with everybody over the course of a week. I was with Derek Rattan, fantastic songwriter, and Derek Hoffman, great producer, um, track guy. And uh, I had this title, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And and just like the Clint Eastwood movie. And the idea would be, I said, pitched it to Derek, like... You know, here's what I think. I think it should be the good, the bad, and the ugly. And it's about all the characters that you meet, you know, in those bars. Because I would play these small towns, and typically there would only be one venue that would have would have live music anyway. And so there was a, a mishmash of people, from professionals to construction people to bikers and uh, young people and families eating chicken wings in the corner and, like, all <laughs> different walks of life. And I met some great people in those rooms, and some of which are my Friends to this day. And so I was explaining this to Derek, like, wouldn't it be great we could paint a picture of all those, you know, because they're all similar in certain ways, you know? And, you know, I can see him mulling it over. He's like, I, I love the concept. He's like, I, but, you know, can you sing the word ugly? Like, it's a weird word, like, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's a weird <laughs> word to say. And I was, I was yeah, kind of yeah. getting frustrated a bit because we weren't going. And I was like, I don't know, Derek, what do you want to call it? Like, the good, the bad, and the pretty? Like, give me a break. And he goes, oh, that. I said, what do you mean that? It's not even a thing. He goes, it will be, let's write it, you know, that kind of thing. So, and it just, it was one of those things that, that just fell out in the moment and felt right and had a thing. And, um, you know, that's how you get all that imagery, like, you know, the Coors Light sign buzzing on the wall and, um, you know, pink lipstick on cigarettes and, and all that kind of stuff. And that's, it's basically a love letter to all those bars and all those people that I played for all those years
0: right and now moving forward i know that you are an album guy but you've gone through a string here of releasing an ep and releasing some singles so are you really itching to get back and get out an album
1: yeah i don't know i don't know like you know i sort of got it they had to talk me into it you know i sat down with my team my manager in particular and he's like this is what we're thinking you know it's kind of tough to commit to 12 songs and then and then just have those 12 songs for two years or whatever the cycle of an album is. And he kind of put it in terms like, it'd be cool. Like you can stay creative. You know, if you write a song today, we can cut it, put it out on the next thing. And we can, we don't have to wait 18 months or two years to release music. We can put it out right away. And that sounded attractive to me. And I've kind of leaned into it to be honest. So, you know, we had this master plan that was great. I loved it. It was, you know, we were going to release three songs and it was called wreck and then we were going to release three more songs and it would be called wreck this. Oh, and then okay. we we're going to release a record called wreck this town and go on tour and have the wreck this town tour and all this <laughs> stuff and of course covid got in the way and yeah. uh, we just we jumped ship and and you know we were we were all in in agreement that you know 2020 needed to end And anything that anybody, any of us did in 2020, we just needed to cut ties with. And so we jumped ship on the last installment of the Wreck This Town record, you know, knowing that we would never get to go on the Wreck This Town tour. Um, And so, um, uh, but, you know, it, it was okay. Like, it took me a week to get over it. And then it was like, okay full speed ahead let's what's next then what do we got what do we need what's happening who's writing this week and i've really kind of embraced the staying creative and uh you know anything goes kind of atmosphere of like putting out eps because literally Mm -hmm. it's 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 been a little bit like that um in the sense that if i write a good song today we can cut it tomorrow and put it out on monday you know yeah it's it's, and that's kind that's interesting to me uh, uh as an artist
0: yeah. Well, that's awesome. Well, we'll look forward to more new music. I could sit here. I have to have you on again because I have so many things that I wanted to talk to you about I love that. Uh, sort of aside from the music, you know, yeah. I, I saw on your social media, you're hanging out with hockey legends at the Toronto Maple Leafs game. You're singing yeah. the hockey song to the fans uh, at the I Leafs have- game. And yep. man, we have all this stuff we need to talk about.
1: Yeah, I could talk to you. I, I'm, I'm going to write a book one day about all the road stories. that's awesome
0: well yeah if we're able to have you on again maybe we can just focus on those road stories because i I would love to hear them
1: yeah awesome well thank you for the time i appreciate it that was great